Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. are done with Philippians for the semester. We finished last week, and so I thought to myself, well, what could we do for two more weeks, a short series? And I decided that we would do an Easter series since this coincides with Easter, but I want to do Easter from the Old Testament for us in the course of two weeks. And I want to do that because Jesus understood Easter to be related to the Old Testament. There was actually an episode in the Gospel accounts where Jesus was up on a mountain and he started he was transfigured he was glowing his glory was showing and Moses and Elijah show up and in Luke's gospel it says they stood they were talking about Jesus's exodus and it's this way of showing that what Jesus is doing on the cross it's all it all begins with the story that God is laying out in the old testament and so really to understand easter we need to understand the Old Testament, and specifically these two stories that we're going to look over the next look at over the next couple of weeks uh, tonight, the story of Passover, and uh, next week, the actual Exodus out of Egypt. And so, uh, that's what we're going to do. And it's going to be great. So come, stay here, and come back next week uh, for that for our mini series on Easter. But uh, as we come to this passage now, the background is that uh, God's people, Israel, are enslaved in Egypt. Uh, they've been enslaved for four hundred years or so. And God, but meanwhile, there's this promise hanging uh, out there from centuries before that said that God would one day uh, bring his people to a promised land. And so the problem is that the promise is there, but God's people are enslaved. And not only that, uh, God has sent all these plagues on Egypt to try to get the Pharaoh to let them go. And none of them seem to be doing the trick. And they seem to be making things worse for God's people. And that is the background. And so let me read it for us, uh, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll skip around a little bit. Uh, So the beginning of chapter 12 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Uh, Skipping ahead to verse 29, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, this is a challenging text, uh, especially for those of us who live today, and so we pray that you'd guide us and give us wisdom for it. Uh, Send us your spirit to apply its truth to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so as I said before, this text comes on the heels of a really challenging time in the history of God's people. Enslaved for 400 years or more, Things getting worse and worse. Nothing seeming to be working as far as them getting out of Egypt. In other words, it's a hopeless situation, a seemingly hopeless situation. And so that's what—that's where this text applies to us. Uh, that's, this is where we should bring this text to the hopeless situations in our lives. The time you, your life may or may not feel hopeless even tonight. Uh, I wonder if it does uh, when nothing's going right or when we're just worn out by life. And if that's you, uh, this text has something really powerful to say to you. And if it's not you tonight, it will be you sometime. And this is the text that uh, we can bring our hopelessness to and have it be transformed. Uh, So when you've tried everything and it's failed, when you're ready to throw in the towel... What you need to hear about is the God who saves. And as we think about Easter coming up, Easter is about the God who saves, uh, particularly the God who saves uh, those with no other hope. And in this passage, there's a few concepts that I want to look at to help us understand the God who saves. And these, uh, there's three concepts that I want to unpack tonight uh, that are kind of confusing, so it's worth spending some time on them. And they're the firstborn, the blood, and the lamb. Uh, So I want us to think about those three things uh, as we try to figure out what it means that uh, we serve a God who saves and that God has accomplished salvation. And I'll just acknowledge on the front end that this is a challenging passage for modern people. Uh, So if there's like something in here that you want to talk about more, please come find me after. We'll make time to talk uh, because there's just a lot that's challenging in this text. Uh, relating to death and blood and all these things. And so uh, if, if what I've said tonight doesn't quite get it for, uh, hit home for you, let's talk some more. Uh, but it's really important that we focus on these uh, things, the firstborn and the blood and the lamb tonight. And so first of all, the firstborn. Uh, in this text, it's about the Passover in which the firstborn 
uh, all the firstborn in Egypt are killed. And what you need to see, what you need to know about the firstborn doesn't mean that much in our society, but in that society, your whole life, your being was tied to like your family tree, uh, the extension of your family, the propagation of your future family and your connection to your past family. And so what the firstborn meant in that society was everything. Everything was tied to the firstborn because your firstborn was your hope for the future. All hope for the future, your future, was riding on the firstborn in your family. The firstborn were so important. Like the modern day equivalent of this would be like all your security for the future. So like losing your firstborn would be like today having your bank account wiped and your college transcript Wiped and all your possessions taken away. Uh, that's kind of what is, you know, that's what the firstborn is about. It's your whole security for the future. And what God is doing here with the firstborn, it's his way of saying that he has a right to everything in your life, just based on the fact that he's God and he made you. And you might think about that idea and be like, you know, I don't really like that. Like, I struggle with that. At first glance, like, we don't like this idea. But what I want us to see tonight is that if you don't have a God like that, then you don't really have a God at all. Because if, you don't, if your God doesn't have a right to everything, he's not God, right? If he doesn't have a right to change anything he wants, he's not God. He's lesser. Uh, I came across a poem recently called Three Dollars Worth of God, and I'll just read a little part of it. Uh, It says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Uh, Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I can really relate to that. I think we can all relate to this poem, this idea that we want a little bit of God. Uh, I, want it, I, don't, I want God, but I also don't want my life totally disrupted. Uh, but the problem, again, is that if God is who he says he is, if he's truly God, then you can't just have $3 worth of God. It would not be God uh, if it was just a fraction of God. Uh, in the Bible, there's a reason why when people actually encounter God, they fall on their faces. Sometimes people fall dead. There's, there's a reason when people see God, they just say, get away from me, because it's too terrifying. Uh, that's who God actually is. And what that means for us is that, you know, think about your own life. Let's bring it home to our own life. It means you can't put God in, like, one section of your life. Uh, you can't say, like, you know, I, God is my Sunday thing, and the other days are, like, my time. Or you can't say, like, God has this part of my life, but not that part of my life. He doesn't have a say in that part. Uh, when I was in college, I don't know, does the term friend zone still exist today? Okay. Oh, good. I was like, I was like they probably won't know what this is. Like, you know, so what I, when I was in college, we used to say things like, if you were interested in dating someone and they only wanted to be your friend, which meant, meant like they want to keep you around as like a friend, but they don't want to like commit to dating you, you would say like, I got friend zoned. Or, you know, you would say, like, hey, are you, like, dating that girl? And they'd be like, no, I'm in the friend zone right now. And uh, You didn't want to be in the friend zone, right? No one wants to be in the friend zone, which is exactly where we put God. 
uh, most of the time. Uh, God, the God who I need when things get hard, but not the God who I obey when faced with a challenging choice. Uh, we tend to friend zone God. And what this is saying about what, the God who's being revealed in this passage is a God who you can't just come to when life is hard and then ignore for the rest of your life. Like this God has a say in what you major in and who you date and how you live and everything. Uh, this God is God and he made you. Uh, so that's what's entailed in this idea of the firstborn. But now I want to look at this idea of the blood. And this is another part that we really don't like. Like the reality, there's a reality in the Bible of judgment. Uh, the Bible talks about a judgment day. Like God is a judge in the Bible. And we don't like that typically. I don't know if you guys do. Our society doesn't like that. But I want to suggest that we actually do like it. Uh, Russ Whitfield, who was our amazing winter conference speaker this year, uh, many of you remember, uh, he, I actually read something that he wrote uh, on this. He said, despite the popularity of the no judgment doctrine in our culture, the fact is we want to be judged from the outside. Judgment is just a verdict. We simply want to be judged as good and acceptable rather than bad and unacceptable. Uh, You're so great is a judgment. And we never respond to such a declaration with, you can't judge me. In fact, we want and need outside judgment over our lives. Uh, some voice to say, you're good, you're acceptable, you're loved. So do you see what he's saying there? We actually want to be judged. We just don't want to be judged negatively. Uh, this is the same reason why we thrive on social media likes. You know, like liking is a judgment. Uh, thankfully, there's not a dislike on Facebook or anti-heart on Instagram or something like that. Uh, but we, it's the reason, like, we put something out there and we want to be judged. We want to be liked. And the Bible talks about uh, how there will be a judgment day. Jesus will return someday and we will face uh, judgment, which is why God doesn't, God isn't judging every bad thing in the moment right now. Uh, you know, if God were to judge every bad thing in the moment, we would all be struck down. Uh, but there's a judgment day to come, which is why some evil gets overlooked. But sometimes in the Bible, like, in, for instance, in this setting, in special cases, like when God's people are enslaved by Egypt for 400 years, uh, God's judgment does break into history. And it accomplishes a specific purpose of saving his people. So this is, in this story, it's an act of judgment against the people that have rejected God. And, you know, again, that's a problem. Like, I don't like the idea of God as a judge, we often say. Uh, but what I want to suggest to you, again, is that if you don't like the idea of God being a judge, being judged according to his standard, you have one other option, which is to be judged by your own standard. There's a, a Christian along, 20th century Christian, his name was Francis Schaeffer, and he always used this illustration. He would say, if you don't like God judging you, you can imagine hanging like a recorder, like you hang your iPhone around your neck and hit record, and it, it's active. The recorder is act, activated every time you say, "People should fill in the blank." I can't believe she just fill in the blank, and it records all those things. And then imagine your life being judged by what you said. You know, like I can't believe people cut people off in traffic. You know, it's a nice sentiment, but like if you ever judge, if you ever cut someone off in traffic, then you would be guilty 
according to your own judgment. And the point that Francis Schaeffer was making is that whether it's God's judgment or our own standard, you will fail the judgment. You will not pass. Uh, you will always fail. Um, and the second thing about judgment is the necessity of payment. Like, we have a problem sometimes with being like, you know, blood, God, are you serious? Come on. Like, can't you just forgive? Like, what is this sacrifice thing? What is this blood thing? And if you think about it, it makes total sense because every wrong needs to be made right. Anytime someone wrongs you, it means that someone has to pay, whether it's either you paying or them paying. I'll give you an example. Um, imagine that I go around spreading rumors about Brie, and I'm like walking around the campus being like, did you hear what Brie did? She's totally dishonest, and she like, cheats on all her exams, and, and the word is just spreading throughout the campus, and every, every time people see Brie, they're just like, oof, no, she's awful. And imagine, so that happens, and then like, I realize what I've done, and I say, hey, Brie, I'm really sorry. And I walk away. Like, would that be, like, would Brie be cool with that? No, because the problem is everyone on campus still hates her, right? <laughs> like someone, so she, like, she has to pay. Like she's still paying for what I did, even though I said I'm sorry. Like payment needs to happen. Like payment would be either me like going around telling everyone that like, no, I was wrong. I'm an idiot. I'm so stupid. Why did I say that? Or uh, Bree just accepting that fate, right? But payment has to to happen. You can't have wrong without payment for wrong. Um, okay. Uh, where am I? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the, this works on a social scale, too. So I read a couple weeks ago, did you hear this? So UCon, one of your peers was arrested and kicked out of school for downloading child pornography. And that happened here in one of us. And you know, the funny thing about that is, it's not funny, but the, the interesting thing about that is everyone was cool with that. Like, everyone was glad that student got kicked out. Right? Why were we, like, why did we want that to happen? It's because if he doesn't pay by being kicked out, then we as a campus pay by knowing that that's going on on our campus. It affects us. And so no matter, what, no matter whether it's a personal sin issue or like a societal sin issue, there always needs to be payment. So if God is really God, it shouldn't surprise us that he demands payment when people actively ignore him, even though he's the creator. It shouldn't surprise us when God demands payment when we hurt people that he created or disrespect people that he created, or lie to them, or use them. And these are things we've all done, right? Uh, so God demands payment, and just like everyone does. And well, the final thing we need to see about this payment is that there's an equality of the judgment in this story. Um, it's not like there's good people and bad people in this story. In this, in, this, every, in this story, every house in Egypt that night has either a dead person or a dead lamb in it, without exception. It's not, Israel's not better than Egypt. Uh, Israel just has a lamb, and Egypt doesn't. 
Okay, and what this means for us is, as Christians is that there's no more us versus them. Christians are not good people and everyone else is the bad people. Everyone needs to pay. Christians are people that have found payments in a lamb instead of trying to pay themselves. And this is so important that Christians aren't better, that Christians aren't superior, because it's the only way that we can love. Like, you can't love someone that you think you're better than. And only the gospel can really create this kind of love, because it says, you're not, like, Lucas Dorado is a pastor, and he's not better than that guy who got kicked out of UConn. He's just, I'm just not better than him. Although I am someone who has been saved by God. Okay? And so that, this is the basis for why we can love difficult people, while we, why we can love our enemies. Uh, because we know we're not better. All right, so that is the blood. And now I want to look at the lamb. Uh, and specifically, how does God go about saving his people in this story? And he goes about saving them by providing a way that a life can be substituted for their life. Uh, he provides this lamb. He provides, in other words, the payment that we need. And this separates the God of the Bible from every other God and every other religion. Uh, lots of gods are are judges, lots of gods demand payment, but this God provides the payment that he demands for his people. He says, I will accept a substitute for your life. And here he says that the life of the lamb can be a substitute for God's people. And I want us to think about a lamb. Like why, a, why would God choose a lamb to be the substitute? Like, why wouldn't he choose like a big bull or something like that. You know, you got to like get on this bull and kill it. And he like what he picks a lamb because a lamb is weak. Like he specifically picks a lamb because anyone can pick up a lamb in the field. Uh, lambs are cute and innocent, but they're definitely not powerful. Uh, it's this way that God is hammering home the fact that you cannot save yourself. You do not contribute to your own salvation. There's a lot of things God could have said, right? He could have said, pray 10 times a day for 10 days and you'll be saved. You'll live. But that's really just you saving yourself, right? Then you have something to brag about. You say, I I prayed, I was faithful, and God saved me. Then you're still prone to fall back into your old habits. Then you're still prone to look down on people. But if it's God that saves you through the blood of a weak little lamb then all you can do is just say thank you and begin to trust him and begin to live for him even when it's hopeless uh, you don't in other words you don't save yourself by taking steps toward god and making him gradually more happy with you uh, rather it's god that saves from start to finish and he can even do it with a little lamb Uh, But what you need to see, and the point of this story, the reason we're talking about this story is because this is just an episode in a much bigger story about the real lamb and the ultimate salvation. Okay, this happened something like 1400 BC. And for 1400 some years, every year God's people celebrated the Passover. This moment when God began his rescue of them. Uh, Every year they would celebrate it. And remember, God saved us. God saved us. 
And there came a point when Jesus was born, and Jesus came on the scene. Uh, Jesus, who was an Israelite, a Jew, who grew up celebrating the Passover. And on the night before Jesus dies, he gathers his disciples, and they hold a Passover feast. And Jesus provides the wine. And he brings the unleavened, he provides the unleavened bread. But the curious thing about this Passover dinner is there's no lamb at it. Because he is the lamb at this dinner. And the next day at twilight, at the start of Passover, Jesus, the firstborn, dies on the cross. The lamb of God dies on the cross. And what the story of Passover points us to is that for us to be saved... We need a true lamb without blemish. All those other lambs, the 1,400 years worth of lambs were not enough. They were just pointing us to the lamb who was to come. The true lamb without blemish. The one who lived the life that we were meant to live and died the death that we deserve to die. uh, The perfect substitute for our lives. The true firstborn son of God. Okay? The essence of Christianity is that God, the true God, the one who's just and holy, the judge, he substitutes himself for his people so that we can be with him forever. That's so what we begin to celebrate as a church this week on Good Friday. Uh, Religious people are people that are trying to save themselves. Meanwhile, Christians trust in a God who saves sinners. A God who saves uh, people who can't get it right. Christians point to the cross. Christians point to the blood. And they say, that's my story, actually. It's finished. Like, it's done. God promises to bless me eternally, not because I'm better than anyone, not because I've lived an especially good life, because I'm marked by his blood, the blood of the lamb. The more this story is central to you, the more you begin to live life in this story, the more life will just feel like life again. Uh, The more free you will be, the more patient and loving you'll be able to be with people, uh, the less stressed you will be about what your future could possibly hold. Because you'll say... He's my everything. I live for the Lamb who lived for me. He's central to me. I'll live for him no matter where he takes me. How could my life be truly hopeless if I have him and he's saved me? Uh, It's the beginning of the story of the Exodus. So come back next week and we'll wrap it up with the actual Exodus Uh, after we've celebrated Easter this Sunday. So let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Lamb. We thank you that uh, it is good that you were a judge because if you weren't a judge, then evil would just be unrestrained in our world. And it's so good for us that you provide a substitute for us because we would not stand in the judgment. I pray that that would be our story, Lord. Uh, no matter who we are and where we're coming from tonight and what kind of week we're having, 
what kind of hopelessness we feel, uh, I pray that this would be our story and we would be changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.